This is an ABC podcast. Cost of living pressures sees regional families reach to charities and food services as people struggle to put food on the table. The majority is the working poor. So this is people with jobs. People who never thought they would ever have to present to support before. And these central Queensland kids know their way around looking after their herd of magnificent Texas Longhorn cattle. In the afternoon, when school's done, we come down and lead them and feed them and let them go. They only lead for me. You only have to say, come on, and then give her a yank. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country. The New South Wales State Emergency Service is closely monitoring conditions on the Murrumbidgee River in the state's south, where a moderate flood peak is expected in Wagga Wagga tonight. Nearly 100 weather warnings remain in place across the state, from Sydney's northwest to the river in Rena as the flooding continues. Melinda Hayter is in Wagga Wagga and she joins us now. Now, Melinda, what's the situation like there? Here in Wagga Wagga, Sinead, uh, the the city of Wagga Wagga is expecting uh, a moderate flood peak to pass through the Murrumbidgee River sometime tonight. At lunchtime today, the the river was sitting at around 9 metres and the peak tonight is expected to be around that 9.3 metres. So as the the sun sets, there will probably still be a little bit of water to, to rise in the Murrumbidgee. Driving around Wagga Wagga today, there is a lot of water out on the the floodplain and, and areas that are normally covered in, in farmland and, and all of that is, is certainly inundated. As for the, the city of Wagga Wagga itself, it's likely to, to fare fairly well in this flood. There is a nine kilometre long levee that protects the Wagga Wagga CBD, so that will ensure everything stays dry there. In some lower-lying suburbs surrounding Wagga, we are starting to see a little bit of inundation. There's a, a very flood-prone suburb just to the north of Wagga called North Wagga Wagga. The levee that protects that community is slightly smaller than the one that protects the the main Wagga Wagga CBD and residents have been warned that they may be isolated if we we see the the water level get to that 9.3 metre um, mark. Uh, Some people have chosen to isolate in sort of rural areas surrounding Wagga that are on the floodplain. Um, The SES I know have been out and about today doing well fair checks on on those people and making sure they've got enough supplies. That isolation is is only expected to last a couple of days at best. But um, Murrumbidgee means big water in Wiradjuri, which is the Indigenous nation that covers this part of the world. And certainly the river is very much living up to its name at the moment. North from you in the New South Wales Central West, rising waters have claimed the life of a man trapped in his car. What information have police given around that situation? We understand that the the gentleman, he was a 46-year-old man, he left for work on Sunday, never arrived, um, and when he didn't return home, that's when authorities were alerted to his disappearance. Um, And throughout yesterday, there was quite a a large-scale search involving uh, police and helicopters and so forth, and it was actually from the air that um, officers spotted a car that was um, submerged in the the Campbells River, um, and that's at Essington, which is just south of, of Bathurst. 
arrest. Um, and unfortunately, they believe that um, the, the man has, his car has been swept off a causeway there and uh, his life has tragically been taken by these floods. Melinda Hater in Wagga Wagga, thanks. Cheers. This is ABC Australia Wide. Let's head south over the border now where Victorians are being warned to prepare for the state's biggest downpour of the year with parts of the state forecast to receive between 50 and 70 mils tomorrow. Five flood warnings are in place across the state's north with a number of Victorian dams at capacity. The state emergency services is warning residents to be prepared for flooding rains and some regional areas are being told they could be cut off for a number of days. Shannon Schubert is our reporter in Victoria and is monitoring the situation Shannon, how are conditions in central Victoria at the moment? Very wet at the moment, Sinead, but locals fear it's only going to get worse, unfortunately. Residents in central Victoria around Rochester and Elmore have begun sandbagging their properties and preparing their homes for very significant flooding. The SES has told us, worst case scenario, if central Victoria receives that very heavy rainfall forecast for tomorrow, there could be hundreds of homes damaged by flooding. We have watching acts in place for the Avoca River around Charlton, the Loddon River around Bort and the Murray River across the border of New South Wales and Victoria. There's also several other flood warnings in place from moderate flood warnings to minor flood warnings. There's one for the Campaspe River. There's a minor flood warning for the Loddon River, Lanakuri to Loddon Weir and a severe weather warning for Castlemaine, Maryborough and Dalesford in the south of our central Victoria patch. So lots of wild and wet weather on the way tomorrow and a lot of locals on high alert for that one. Shannon, you mentioned there that people are sandbagging in order to prepare their homes for the ongoing for the weather that's coming up but what about other sort of preparations getting in supplies that kind of thing are people going to those kind of lengths or are they holding off on that Yes, the the message from the SES is to start preparing now, although the peak for some of these rivers is not expected to hit until Saturday. The message from the SES is to prepare now because we don't know if roads are going to be blocked tomorrow and Friday. So really for residents, the message is prepare by making sure you have enough water, making sure you have power banks, making sure you have snacks. And if you're preparing your property for flooding, the message is bag it, block it, lift it and leave. So sandbag that property, block entrances where water could seep through, lift furniture or valuables if possible to higher ground and plan to leave earlier rather than later. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangren. Nowhere gets behind a local athlete quite like regional Australia. The last year alone saw plenty of proof of that when the small Victorian town of Nil, halfway between Adelaide and Melbourne, proudly declared itself the home of Lucy Stephen when the rower won gold at the Tokyo Olympics. But if the joy is more keenly felt during achievements, so too is the grief during low points. Nil had to deal with this flip side in 2002, when its favourite son and North Melbourne footballer Jason McCartney received shrapnel wounds and burns to more than half his body in the Bali bombings. Ahead of the 20th anniversary of those bombings today, our reporter Alexander Darling spoke to both Jason and Nil College Indonesian teacher Jill Kuby about their memories of that time. A huge bomb has ripped through two bars packed with foreign tourists on the Indonesian island of Bali. Kangaroos footballer Jason McCartney was the most seriously injured with burns to 50% of his body. 
It was on this day 20 years ago that 202 people were killed, including 88 Australians, when two bombs were detonated minutes apart in Bali's popular Kuta nightclub district. It remains the largest loss of Australian life from an act of terrorism. Among the many hundreds injured was Jason McCartney, who left Neil College in 1990 to start his AFL career. Jason was on an end-of-season trip with a North Melbourne teammate, and they had only been out on the Cooter Strip for 15 minutes when the shocking and life-altering events took place. Yeah, I only arrived that afternoon, and then that evening uh, just went out for dinner in around Cooter, and then went to uh, what was Paddy's Bar, and yeah, we were just there for 15 minutes, and obviously a life-changing experience occurred. Jason hopes that for the 20th anniversary, people remember the acts of bravery from the Balinese locals and tourists, in addition to the tragedy. I think of instantly uh, being out the front and what felt like minutes, um, but it was only seconds, and then my, my teammate and great friend Mick Martin uh, emerged through the smoke and rubble, and I was instantly I was able to recognise he had some minor injuries, but they weren't as bad as, as bad as mine. And the way he took control of the situation, his leadership was really important. He, uh, he dragged me up the road as, as far away as possible, and he was trying to get transport for me which was a bit of a struggle because it's pretty congested, the streets in around Kudu um, at any stage on a, on a Friday and Saturday night or most nights, but after what had transpired, it just, it was chaos. My fate really just, like everyone else, rested in the, the hands of what I remember being about three or four Balinese uh, doctors. So they were amazing what they did. Obviously, the situation they were in, I suppose the facilities at the hospital, we're talking 20 years ago, and it was a hospital for the locals, so it wasn't in great condition, but... Once again, all you can ever ask for is people do their best. No, they're amazing. They just did what they could. Jason also remembers the support he received from his hometown standing out amongst the wave of sympathy he received once back in Australia. Obviously, uh, the town provided amazing support for, for mum and dad and my, my brothers. So, And that's a great thing about small communities. They, they really rally in, uh, in times of need, and it was certainly a time of need. So... At that point in time, too, it's not me. It really needs the support. It's because uh, I can never begin to imagine. I hope I never have to go through it as a parent. The situation, you know, mum and dad were in, um, finding out in the early hours of sort of Sunday morning that I've been caught up overseas in a terrorist attack, and you, you know, you're living in a small country town in country Victoria. So just the enormity of all that. But yeah, just a, just amazing support, which is um, yeah which we uh, acknowledged at the time and still acknowledge to this day the important uh, role that that support played for, for our family. And very similar for my wife uh, and her family in over in Millicent in southeast South Australia. So, again, so many, so many well wishes, so many people wanting to help in any way they could, which was really important. Jill Kuby taught at Jason's old school back in Nil before and after his time there. She didn't know him personally but she remembers the story of him overcoming burns and shrapnel wounds to play one more game of AFL, galvanising the community. This town does come together well at times like that. Um, and then after his recovery, uh, there were some positive things in that Jason came and spoke and did some motivational um, talks at our school, which was just really significant because it was not all that long after you know, he'd made his recovery and um, he was able to motivate people um, knowing that he'd come from this little country town. At the time, Jill was worried what impact the bombings would have on the uptake of Neil College's Indonesian language class, which had only been introduced to the school two years earlier. Fortunately, it remains well-subscribed, and the bombing is now mentioned as part of the curriculum. I 
recently run a topic with the Year 7s, which was about Bali, and it was trying to get the kids to see past what tourists see in Bali. And I actually asked the class, you know, how many of them knew about the bombings. And the ones who did, and not many of them did, um, were mostly ones who were like, oh, yeah, you know, he's a relation of mine or my parents went to school with him. So they knew about Jason um, in connection with the bombings, but the bombings themselves they actually didn't know a lot about. And, um, you know, it's a little bit tricky when you teach it maybe because I try to walk that fine line between not getting kids scared that they'll go to... Bali to Indonesia and, you know, something bad will happen to them, but also, you know, wanting to, I suppose, honour and respect the people that were, you know, killed and injured um, at the time. So, you know, that fine line that you've got to walk um, in wanting them to fall in love with Indonesia, I suppose, and not be scared to go there. Jason still has family living around the town, but he himself is now a resident of Sydney and the football manager for the GWS Giants. Jason is also a father to two teenage boys. Like Jill with her students, he and wife Nerissa were careful in how they brought up the blasts with their children. We're very cautious at what age do, do we start exposing them a little bit to it. But obviously when Dad's had 50% burns to his body and there's a lot of scarring, it's inevitable that there is going to be questions. Obviously when we were back in Bali and they're at the right age, it was just taking them back to the, the memorial site um, in Kuta near where both uh, Surrey Club and Paddy's bar were and just just having the conversation around it and any questions they had trying to answer them as best as uh, as best as I could. Jason McCartney speaking there to our reporter Alex Darling. Lend us your ears and experience a world of audio content with ABC Listen. A world of sound. Like Expanse Pink Diamond Heist. How millions of dollars of diamonds were stolen in the middle of the bush and somehow smuggled to Europe. And dive deep beneath the surface of three crooked cops known as the Rat Pack. In Dig, Sirens Are Coming. Dorothy handed Hallahan the money and when he walked off, the undercovers swooped. The ABC Listen app. Lend me your ears. Download it now from your app store. And while you're there, you can download Australia Wide and listen to any episode of Australia Wide that you would like. There's five episodes of The Pink Diamond Heist there for you to listen to. Across the country, cost of living pressures like the price of fuel and rising interest rates are hitting people hard. But in rural towns, food security is emerging as a significant issue. In Outback WA, charities and food services are seeing demand rise by almost 50% as people struggle to put food on the table. Many first-timers are turning to food banks, forced to choose between feeding their family or going hungry. Andrew Chanding reports. The picturesque seaside town of Esperance in Western Australia is about 700 kilometres drive southwest of Perth. The agricultural town is home to about 14,000 people and has long been popular with holidaymakers from across the state. But away from the sprawling green fields and white sandy beaches, life for some residents is less than ideal. The cost of living has hit the goldfields hard, particularly when it comes to buying food. Um, yeah, I definitely increased. Two little bags of groceries is you know, $70. Josh Amdahl lives in Esperance with his seven-year-old daughter and says buying food for the family has become a struggle. It's hard to go and do a shop for any kind of meal or any a week of stuff without and spend less than $100. Living on a fixed income, 
Mr Amdell says after feeding his daughter, he often goes without. Uh, food often doesn't even occur to me personally. I feed my daughter and, and try to feed her good stuff. But when she's not around, I don't eat that much. Mr Amdell says he feels the situation is becoming increasingly hopeless, and he's not the only one. Further north of Esperance is one of WA's biggest and richest country towns, Kalgoorlie, where even more people are struggling to afford the basics. In the Kalgoorlie area, we're seeing a significant increase um, by about 40% on our daily average number of people presenting. So not just are the numbers up. We're getting a lot of new first-timers coming to the branch in Kalgoorlie, plus they're coming with vouchers. So um, this is quite a shift from where we've been in the service provision in the, in the Kalgoorlie area. Food Bank CEO Kate O'Hara says the type of people using the service has also changed. Well, it's, it's, the majority is the working poor. So this is people with jobs, people who never thought they would ever have to present to support before. But for every person who comes to the food bank, others continue to struggle behind closed doors. What we know about it is the people that are coming forward, that's only a segment of the people in the community that are dealing with serious food stress. You know, they're skipping many meals each week and they're not buying as much because they just don't have the cash. We believe there's probably, on every street across the state, there's somebody in need. As interest rates have risen over the past five months, so too have the number of people turning to food banks. June data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics shows the consumer price index rose by 6.1% in the past 12 months, with food and non-alcoholic items rising by 5.9%. For Kalgoorlie Boulder Mayor John Bowler, the mounting pressure is a concern. Well, Australia-wide, we've got uh, higher inflation and food prices have gone up a fair bit this year. And that impacts upon particularly those people who aren't earning big bucks in the mining industry or the service industry, people on standard wages, and uh, some of them are struggling. He says the wage gap in Kalgoorlie means some households were feeling the pinch more than others. You know, the food bank, and it does a great job down there in Boulder, um, it's a bit of a worry that so many more people are starting to use it. Back in Esperance, and Mr Amdahl says the local food bank is only an option he considers when times are especially tough. Um, I could go in now, but I don't need to today. Um, I might by the end of my pay week, but um, right now I'm okay. He says he hopes something can change and soon. But until it does, not thinking about food is all Mr. Amdal can do. Think about it. I don't feel hungry anymore. Andrew Chanding reporting there from Kalgoorlie. Leading a half-ton cow with giant horns around a paddock is all in a day's work for four-year-old Jay Slam. His central Queensland family owns a stud of about 90 registered Texas Longhorn cattle. And if you've ever seen them, they're pretty magnificent. Aaron Semler has this story. Most people think they're scary because they have horns, but they're actually quite friendly. They are gentle giants, pretty much. Jack Lamb and his siblings Jace, Johanna and John are fourth-generation cattle handlers on a 16,000-acre property between Banana and Theodore in central Queensland. We want them to be nice and clean, so when we go in the showing, they 
don't look filthy and they don't look like we haven't um, brushed them or washed them. We've only broken them in and made them calm. Their parents, Dan and Megan, bought their first Texas Longhorn about nine years ago. I always wanted an animal to put in the paddock and grow out a set of horns and some people over the hill from us listed some ex-roping cattle on Facebook and Megan saw the ad and said, oh, well, they're close, so we'll go and have a look. We started with one heifer, which soon became a few more heifers, which became a registered mob, and now I think we've got uh, about 95 registered females. The lambs run a commercial cattle operation of a 1,000 Brahmin and European breeders and own a stud of about 90 registered Texas longhorn cattle. Our biggest steer we've got actually belongs to Johanna, our daughter, and he's just cracked over 100 inches, so that's 2.54 metres. Longhorns are a niche market, commonly used for display in rodeos in Australia, but the lambs make the most of their hobby by showing, breeding and selling them. Um, What we put into the longhorns we make back and more, so our old girls go to a butcher at Monto. By going that way we can access the head and the hides back and then we send them away to get processed. So we're getting paid for the meat, we're getting paid for the head and horns, and we're getting paid for the hide. Dan says commercial breeders buy registered heifers to produce highly marketable crossbred calves. When we started, the top price female in Australia was $4,250, and um, now we saw earlier this year that the top price female went for $18,000. So... In eight or nine years, that's a huge price difference. Showing the longhorns is a bonding activity. They're unique in in colour, in horn, but also their personality, and I I just enjoy getting to know each and every animal. We've all got our favourites, and, yeah, I enjoy that. We can all do it together as a family. I love about doing this, communicating around my cattle. What about you, Josie? I like brushing horns. She's looking shiny, Josie. Little Jace has no trouble putting bulls and heifers in their place. Our youngest, who is now four, started showing long horns when he was just two, and he particularly enjoys it. We are showing sort of generations of cattle now. You know, we've shown heifers' mothers, and, and now we're showing the heifers and, and so on. So I think that we know their personality so much that we just trust them. And the kids, I think, having grown up with the horns, they're aware of how to move their body around them. When they're not doing their distance ed schoolwork, you'll find all four kids in the paddock. We come down and we keep brushing them and we sometimes wash them and blow them. And then we go back to doing school and then in the afternoon, when school's done, we come down and lead them and feed them and let them go. Rayella is my Lola and Maybelline, they only lead for me. You only have to say, come on, and then give her a yank. The siblings show their Branga stud at regular ag shows, but Megan says horned animals can't be shown at these events. Months of tireless preparation went into the Texas Longhorns Australia 2022 show in Scone last month. The N-Bar stud claimed several awards, including Champion Bull, Champion Junior Parader and Most Successful Exhibitors. I like doing my cattle because you win ribbons and you get rewards from doing your best.
Eldest sibling John says while leading longhorns is not a common teenage hobby, it's very rewarding. Seeing them for the first time and you know their personality and their nature and then creating a bond and, you know, um, trusting them and leading them around, it's, it's good, yeah. It teaches you a lot of lessons because, like, life's not going to be easy um, and you're going to have struggles. you just got to work through it. Megan and Dan are extremely proud. Yeah, my grandfather came from cane farms at Mackay um, with a few dairy cows and then he bought his first beef cattle property in 1962 and we've been only beef cattle for 60 years this year. Um, he lived here with us up until two years ago. Um, he spent the last few years of his life here with us and um, he got an immense amount of enjoyment sitting on the veranda and watching the three generations below him working together and yeah, doing his life's work, I suppose, continuing it. So, yeah, to see that tradition continuing on is very humbling. You can watch the kids in action on Australia Wide's webpage on ABC Online. And that was Aaron Semler with that story. And that's Australia Wide for this Wednesday. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.